Hi, I'm Rachel Krause. And I'm Carol Stern. And we are here to explore and unpack the essence, architecture, and DNA of purpose across industries, professions, relationships, and even within paradox. On this podcast, we're going to uncover the stories and the journeys of our guests, unlocking pathways to grow, to gain, and to give. So welcome to Listen on Purpose. I'm Carol Stern and my co-host, Rachel Krauss, and we are really excited today to have Kyle Lerman with us. Kyle and I have known each other for a number of years. He is, let me get your title correct. Thank you. CEO of Civic Nation. I am. um, A nonprofit ecosystem for high-impact organizing and education initiatives. Big mouthful, but an organization really doing amazingly great work, and so we're excited to share that with our listeners today. Why don't we start a little bit, though, before we get into what the organization does with your journey? Yeah. How you come to this, what motivates you, why purpose is important to you? Well, I come from a family of public servants. First off, great to be here. Thank you for having me. And as a lifetime admirer of Carol and getting to know Rachel as well, my parents are both public servants. My mom was a pediatric nurse practitioner at a community health center in Washington, D.C. My dad, longtime politics and public service. But I actually kind of lost my purpose a little bit, I would say, when I was in college. And then I was sitting on my couch one day in September of 2007. This is the first YouTube video I ever remember watching, but I remember watching then-Senator Obama give a speech at the Jefferson-Jackson dinner in Iowa in the primary. And I basically just said to myself, man, I've got to go work for that guy. I ended up emailing his then chief of staff, Pete Rouse, and said, where do you need me? And I ended up driving to Charleston, South Carolina, nine hours, for what I thought was going to be one week off. The last week of my winter break, I was going to volunteer for the Obama campaign. And I got to Charleston the day after the Iowa caucus, and it was flooded with energy, enthusiasm. People were doing incredible things, and I got hooked. I ended up becoming an organizer on the Obama campaign. I left college for a year. And I got to work in South Carolina, Maryland, Texas, Pennsylvania, Kentucky, and Virginia. So I got to see incredible parts of the country through the campaign. And it both solidified my interest in public service and politics, but it also showed me the power of organizing and how if you can build relationships with people in common purpose around a mission, you can do incredible things. And that was me doing organizing to get people to make phone calls and knock on doors and register voters. But that framework and that method of change making just stuck with me for my whole life. And that was what kicked off my whole journey. And I did go back to college, but then I had the privilege of working in the White House for Valerie Jarrett and Tina Chen, folks that you know well, Carol. I was in the Office of Public Engagement where I did all of our work to engage with young people on education issues and then in sports and entertainment world. So it was an incredible place to work, incredible people to work for. Our job was really, we were organizers in the White House. So that organizing journey continued. Since then, I've taken over as CEO at Civic Nation, where you mentioned what we do. I'm sure we'll get into that. But the kickoff of my journey in trying to make an impact was really started that day when I drove down to Charleston. So it's kind of like from the couch to the country, huh? Literally. (laughs) And what was it when you were on the couch? What was lacking that you said you didn't have purpose until that stimulated something? Where did you feel you were until that point? My parents were public servants, so I'd always seen myself you know, thinking about politics and public service, or as I mentioned, my mom was a nurse practitioner, and I always found the work she did just incredible. I would go visit her at her community health center and meet the patients, but I was 21 and just in the middle of college, and I did not have 
a vision for what motivated me beyond just kind of the traditional path of graduate from a four-year college, figure out what's get next, job. get a job. I didn't have a spark at that time. We always used to say that Barack Obama got people in the door, but it was the people working on the campaign who got you to stay. And that was really true for me. Watching him at the time, seeing his vision for our country got me in the door. It fired me up. It got me off the couch, got me to drive nine hours down to Charleston. So he provided the spark, but then just working the office, this tiny little office in Charleston, and literally no one thought he could win. And after Iowa, everyone realized he could win. So the office was jam-packed and working side by side next to people, just the energy and the enthusiasm for what was possible was contagious. And the people, I always remember Jillian Bergeron helped with volunteer management at the time I was a volunteer. And she empowered me immediately. Kyle, can you help with this? Kyle, can you lead this canvas? Kyle, can you go help with this launch? Can you help with this event? And because of Barack Obama, I showed up, but because of Jillian and a guy named Kevin who helped run the office, I stayed. I was kind of just in the go with the motions and definitely got fired up and ready to go after that. You spent time at the White House. That's not something everybody gets to do. So yeah. a little bit about that. What was it like? Was it what you expected it to be? Well, you know, it's interesting because I'm like a total Washington, D.C., Maryland, inside the Beltway person. But when I went to go work on the campaign, I didn't have an inkling that that would mean I might have a chance to go work in the White House. And that was also special because everyone who went to work on the Obama campaign was not doing it for their next job. They were doing it for the mission, for the vision. And I think that that created a culture in that White House that people were there for the right reasons. Honestly, I'm sure I look back on it with rose-colored glasses, but it was absolutely magical. The people that I got to work with there, the circumstances, doing youth and education and sports and entertainment for President Obama and First Lady Michelle Obama and Vice President Biden and then Second Lady, everyone wanted to engage for the most part because the Congress was divided. Public engagement was one of the real tools we had to make a meaningful impact. So our office was the center of a lot of the energy within the building at the time. It was organizing at the highest level possible because instead of organizing people to knock on doors and make phone calls, it was organizing CEOs and star athletes and philanthropists and principals and associations all, again, towards the same mission. And people showed up. People worked incredibly hard. I'm a big fan of term limits just because I think it motivates when you have an end. You have to take advantage of every single second, every single minute you have. And we all felt that. We knew that we were going to run out of time. So you kind of felt guilty when you weren't working because you knew you were running out of time and you had this once in a lifetime opportunity to make the biggest impact at the biggest scale. And I think we all took that responsibility really seriously, but I had a great time. We had a lot of great work to do. We did a lot of good work, but I think we also just loved being with each other and we loved doing the work. And then just the little things. And you could feel that when you came down. You could feel yeah, it. Yeah, it's a magical place, mm -hmm. especially around the holidays. <laughs> <laughs> right, right time of year. Yes. Okay, take us to Civic Nation. What I ended up doing at the White House, like I said, was organizing sort of both at the grass tops level, so CEOs, philanthropists, celebrities, athletes, and working with everyday folks that were trying to make a difference, local community-based organizations. Civic Nation was started right before I left the White House, but the idea of Civic Nation was to carry on that legacy and that style of work. Policy is critical. Think tanks are great. Legislation is awesome and important, but it's not the only way to make change. You can organize people at the grass tops level, your CEOs, your governors, your celebrities, and community-based organizations and individuals and student leaders. And that work can 
create culture change. That work can create behavior change. That work can create systems change. And that's really the magic that we try to bring together at Civic Nation is combining those types of organizing to drive progress on issues ranging from gender equity to democracy to economic mobility. And honestly, the hardest thing that is part of my job, and Carol knows this, I'm not great at saying no. Those of us in the nonprofit world have always appreciated that about you. Just being honest. (laughs) So the hardest thing is prioritizing because we are capable of doing so much good at Civic Nation. We have this rock star team, 75 folks that are pouring their hearts and souls into the work. And so many people ask for help all the time. Can you launch this new initiative? Can you do this new campaign? And the hardest part is prioritizing because we want to be able to do so much. But that's Civic Nation. It's this ecosystem that is constructed so that we can launch these highly effective, highly impactful public awareness and organizing campaigns that drive people to action and empower folks to make a difference in their own communities. So it's like whatever sector you're in, whatever part of society you're in, whatever location you're in, you have the power to make change on critical issues. And we help guide folks through that and energize them to take that action. So you work in seven different initiatives, as I understand it, just a few, huh? You want to share a little bit about them? Broadly speaking, democracy, economic mobility, gender equity. I'd say one of the ones that's closest to my heart, I actually launched it when we were at the White House, is the It's On Us campaign to stop sexual assault. And the idea there was, like I said, there was great policy that was coming out of the Obama-Biden White House around making sure colleges were upholding Title IX. But at the end of the day, one in five women, one in 16 men, were sexually assaulted by the time they left campus. That's not just a policy problem. That is a culture problem. That is a behavior problem. And if something's a culture problem and a behavior problem, you don't just need legislation to fix it. You need people to step up and solve the problem themselves. You need campuses to step up and solve the problem themselves. So It's On Us is a campaign focused on empowering student leaders to organize, to step in and prevent sexual assault before it happens, to educate their classmates and their peers about consent, and to create a culture on campus where that is the expectation. Where the expectation is if you see something happening, if you see a sexual assault might occur, if I'm a young guy on a campus, maybe 10 years ago, I wasn't comfortable stepping in. I think It's On Us has helped create a culture on a campus where the expectation is that that person steps in to do something about it and where consent is the expectation as well. So that's It's On Us. We run When We All Vote for Mrs. Obama, which is a campaign to change the culture around voting, increase participation in each and every election, and close the age and race voting gap. The idea behind that is that every part of society has a role to play in strengthening our democracy. If you're a media company, how are you using your channels to register and turn out voters? All nonpartisan, by the way. If you're a sports team, you could maybe turn your stadium into an early voting location. You could help register voters at games. So it's pulling on every lever of society to make sure people understand that the only way our democracy thrives is if everybody is not only participating, but helping others participate. So those are two examples. I won't do all seven, but we're proud of all the work that we do at Civic Nation and all the initiatives are doing incredible things. One of the common threads that I'm hearing just in those two examples is about establishing accountability and right of voice and responsibility for one another, for self and for the society around us. Have you found through this work the barrier to entry? Is it apathy? Is it education? Is it it's not my problem? What's been that barrier to entry? I'd say the number one problem is that people don't understand always that they have a role to play in solving these problems. So before we launched It's On Us, I don't think most young men on college campuses understood that they could be an enormous part of the solution when it came to stopping sexual assault. But 
by educating them, by spreading awareness, by empowering them and giving them the tools and the training to activate, we not only made them aware of the problem, but they then were soldiers in the fight to stop it. They understood the role that they could play. So I would say it is a lack of understanding of their own power sometimes. I also think that especially today, it is just so hard to break through and keep people focused on solving problems. So many horrible things going on in the world. Your Instagram or your TikTok or your whatever feed is flooded with bad news. I think folks aren't aware of the ways that they can be part of the solution. They can be a part of the solution, whether it's on democracy, whether it's on gender equity, whether it's on economic mobility or all the other issues. I don't think people are getting the same level of engagement in this new media environment that we're in to solve problems. I think also that, especially the colleges, so I'm curious on your opinion yep. on this one, are struggling with the line between free speech and hate speech. Yep. What's your perspective? Well, I actually was talking to some folks last week about this because the way we did It's On Us was not everybody agreed on the Title IX regulations. That was more of a partisan issue. I don't think it should have been partisan, but it was it made was. partisan. It was partisan. But everyone could agree that preventing sexual assault was the right thing to do. The first thing I was talking to folks about if they were looking at It's On Us as an example of what could be done on campus is even on this issue, there's got to be a few things that students can agree on. They can agree there shouldn't be violence. They can agree there shouldn't be harassment. There shouldn't be anti-Semitism. There shouldn't be Islamophobia. So construct an effort around the things that they agree on. People are always going to debate, but if you can't find some common ground and some common purpose to organize around and engage around, then they're going to entirely focus on all the things that they disagree on. I think it's what our common friend Tim Shriver calls common solutions yeah. as opposed to always having to have complete common ground. Yeah. Let's agree we don't want violence. Let's agree that college campuses need to be a safe place for all students. And then what are the pieces that go into that? And when it's crossed, let's err on the side of safety and not on the side of free speech. Yeah. Again, I think that if you're only letting folks focus on the things that they disagree on, there's never going to be a starting point for discussion and for change to be made. Well, if you look on the other side then, bringing us back yeah. to Civic Nation, when you do agree, when there's yeah. partnerships, and you have a number of amazing partnerships, why don't you share one of them with well, us? Well, and by the way, Carol's a partnerships machine. <laughs> so I always try to pick her brain on that front. But we're a nonprofit. We're a 501c3. We have enormous connections, and we have incredible spokespeople. But at the end of the day, in order to reach the audiences we want to reach, you have to work through partnerships. So we've tried to do that throughout all of our campaigns with It's On Us. The NFL funded a study that we did where we really delved in with male athletes and understood how are they learning about sex? How are they learning about healthy relationships? And I'll tell you, what we learned was not good in terms of how folks these days are learning about it, student athletes. So from that study, we built a playbook for how athletic departments on campus could engage on the issue and train, especially their male athletes. That's great for the cause of sexual assault prevention. That's great for the safety of students on campus. But it's also, I think companies can't wait for problems to be solved just by them once they're there. It's about attacking the root causes of the issues before they become problems when young people become professional in whatever field. And so the NFL has been a great partner on that, not only in funding the research, but also in supporting the distribution of the playbook and helping us get athletic departments to play ball, to continue the sports metaphors here. <laughs> uh, yeah. There's been that with the voting front. The things that I've loved is we've worked with a number of the different ride sharing and transportation companies. The CEO of Lime, a great guy named Wayne Ting, he said, 
would it be helpful if folks got free limes to the poles on their scooters? Would it be helpful if we got messages out to our lime riders in their ride receipts to make sure they're registered to vote? And we did all the above. So Lime is doing that because they want to be a good corporate citizen, but also because their audience wants it. Right. You know, if I'm a young person on a college campus and I don't have a car, it's great to have a free scooter to the polls. It's great to get a reminder to register to vote in a place where I might not have been expecting it. So I think when the purpose that we're working on can align with the values of the company and it makes sense for their audience, that's when you make one plus one equal five. And as we look forward going into the next year, which is a big one to say the least, yeah. how are you thinking about trends, partnerships, challenges, and overcoming that and moving forward, piercing with purpose for what needs to be accomplished in the next 12 months? You mentioned the divisions on campus. The work to find common ground and to work at issues that maybe 10 years ago weren't seen as partisan, but now have been made partisan. Just putting our cards on the table, it gets harder every year, it seems. Our ethos and our mission is fully nonpartisan, and we really try to adhere to that because we want our partners to be fully comfortable engaging in supporting gender equity in driving economic mobility, in helping people participate in their democracy. But that's one of the challenges is this people are afraid to engage because they're afraid to get attacked. That I think goes from companies down to volunteers, down to everyday folks. An educator in their classroom is afraid to do anything because who knows what they might get attacked for these days. So it's creating a situation where folks understand how powerful they can be, but also making sure that you're doing it in a way where they understand that even if they get a little bit of flack here and there, it's the right thing to do and that they're going to be supported. So I think creating the conditions so that folks can participate is going to be really important in 2024. Just calling on all of society. I think there's strength in numbers. The more companies you have, the more companies you'll have. The more philanthropies you have, the more philanthropies you'll have. People feel more comfortable when they are in coalition. So one of the things we're doing at When We All Vote is working to bring together dozens of companies and nonprofits and philanthropies and athletes and celebrities all under one umbrella so that they feel comfortable and excited to engage because there's strength in numbers. So as you look ahead, is there a Kyle campaign in the future? Carol's heard this before. So I'm here to support all Learman women in their runs for <laughs> office, first and foremost. So I've, I've had the privilege of helping my sister become the comptroller in Maryland, first woman ever, which was so fun. I married up. My wife, Amanda, I think would be a great candidate, though she keeps saying she's not going to run. I have a two-year-old, a four-year-old, and a six-year-old, all incredible daughters. And I am enjoying the work that I'm doing now, and I'm enjoying being a dad. And I feel very lucky, especially in the time in their lives when they actually want to hang out with me. <laughs> Take advantage. To be able to fast. hang out with them. But <laughs> President Obama always used to say, don't try to be someone figure out what you want to do. Right now, I feel like I'm utilizing the skills that I have to make the biggest impact. And how are you teaching your kids about purpose? Yeah. Well, they were great campaigners for my sister. Uh, <laughs> I bet the two-year-old the, the best. The, well, I mean, <laughs> if they turn down a Brooke Lehrman pamphlet for me at the polls, my three-year-old, they are not turning it down. <laughs> um, it's interesting. My wife is black and I'm obviously white. And I think that, that has created interesting conversations in our household. One of the things that we do actually every year, Carol, you've got to come too. But we were- The loving party. Yeah, we were thinking about Amazing. how to celebrate our relationship and also to celebrate the progress that made our relationship possible. I believe it was 1967, the ACLU brought the Loving v. Virginia case 
which made interracial marriage possible. So every year on June 12th, my wife and I host the Loving Day Party. And we bring everybody together and we tell the story of what happened and the people who made it possible and about Mildred and Richard Loving. And our kids know that story. And they understand that they're standing on the shoulders of people who fought for change and that our society didn't always look like this. Our marriage wasn't always possible. We don't get too heavy. They're only two, four, and six, but I think that they see their mom and their dad trying to make an impact, and then they see things like our Loving Day Party, and they understand that someday they're going to be called to serve. That's amazing. And would you say that gatherings like that, and clearly the way you parent is also the way you are with society, which is about creating a space where people feel accountable and that there's opportunity and to share their voice and to utilize that voice. Do you feel like you're watching that in your girls growing up? We saw one of them dance and we know that she knows how to to work a room. (laughs) But about them and in terms of their own accountability and shouldering what that means. Again, I know they're young, but everything starts at home. It does. The main sort of action that I ask them to take and that I've seen them take is just be nice, be kind. I mean, even in preschool, even in elementary school, there are cliques, there are bullies. It's like mom and dad are out there fighting for people who might not have the same opportunities that you do. You should fight for kids who aren't as fast, you know, who are getting bullied by friends in school. So right now it's mostly be nice and be kind and show up for people. I literally had this conversation with my daughter. If someone's sitting alone at the table at lunch, go sit with them. And I think those little things hopefully will stick with them for a long time. So in the spirit of advice, we close out every one of our podcasts by asking for a gift for our listeners, something for the swag bag. What do you got? Well, my gift, it's something that I've taken to heart. Ask for help. Always ask for help. The worst thing someone's going to say is no, and then you move on to the next person. So something that I've taken, and sometimes I jokingly say I have no shame when it comes to asking for help, but it's real. I mean, we are trying to help stop sexual assault on campus. We're trying to put money back in low-income folks' pockets. We're trying to help save our democracy. I don't feel bad asking for help with those things. And people, if their heart is in the right place and they're doing things for the right reasons, they're going to get a lot more yeses than they think they are. So no shame. Ask for help. The worst thing that can happen is someone says no. Kyle Lerman, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Amazing having you. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks so much for joining us. Listen on Purpose is a series as part of Kindred Cast from Kindred Media and Audiation with the phenomenal music by Rachel's 10-year-old son, Noam Krauss. If you like this episode, please make sure to subscribe to Kindred Cast wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review letting us know what you think. We are your hosts, Rachel Krauss and Carol Stern. Thank you for listening and find your purpose.